Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. that I've started recently called Curator's Talk. It's a new series presented by the NYUAD Art Gallery in which curators discuss their distinct approaches to curatorial practice. This series surveys the various individual positions and institutional models in the UAE and beyond, offering a public arena to discuss questions that pertain to exhibition making, critical thinking, artistic collaboration, and beyond. Um, with curator's Curators Talk, we um, aim to offer engaging behind-the-scenes insights for art aficionados as well as being an active hub for professional exchange. We aim to connect pr practitioners and also develop informed participants, be they artists, critics, architects, curators, or viewers. Um, most recently, uh, we've hosted uh, Michelle Bambling last week, uh, who was the curator of the first uh, UAE participation in the Architecture Biennale in 2014. Um, and today we have Faisal Tabara, uh, but before Faisal, um, Laila Bunbrek is going to give us an introduction into uh, the National Pavilion UAE. Uh, so I will first introduce Laila and then Faisal. Um, since 2013, Laila has served as the director of the National Pavilion UAE. There, she oversees the operations of the pavilion and its participation in the Venice Biennale for art as well as for architecture. She has worked to set the pavilion's ongoing strategy and vision in collaboration with its commissioner, the Salama bin Hamdan Al Nahyan Foundation, and manages its operations and team. Additionally, she oversees the development of the Venice Internship, a training program that to date has sent around 200 interns to Venice as ambassadors for the UAE and its rich culture. Previously, Laila was the director of, of one of Dubai's preeminent contemporary art galleries, The Third Line. And prior to her move to the UAE, she held positions on the boards of the Canadian Arab Federation, Community Arts Ontario, and the Toronto Arts Council, and was extensively involved in promoting arts and culture within the Canadian Arab community um, and the city of Toronto. She holds a BFA from the University of Waterloo, Canada, with a specialization in drawing and sculpture, and has participated in a number of solo and group exhibitions as an artist within Canada. And our esteemed speaker, Faisal Tabara, he wanted me to give a short introduction, but I'm going to read this whole thing I prepared. Sorry, Faisal. Um, born in Aleppo, Faisal Tabara is an associate dean and associate professor of architecture at the College of Architecture, Art and Design at the American University of Sharjah, and co-founder of the Experimental Architecture and Design Studio, Architecture and Other Things, which is based also in Sharjah. Tabara's work across teaching, research, and practice explores the relationships between regional uh, environmental and architectural imaginaries, or how people bring their natural surroundings to bear on how they understand and shape their world, and to develop alternative building practices that are rooted in their surrounding material and cultural environments. To achieve this, Tabara's work involves uh, works moves between computational tools, emerging technologies, materials research, and historical archives. Faisal was the curator of the National Pavilion for the NP, NPUAE this year, and he's our guest tonight in this capacity. 
for the National Pavilion, he presented his project Aridly Abundant at the 18th International Architecture Exhibition in Venice, which argued for aridity as a sustainable architectural condition, taking the environment of Al-Hajar as a case study, which I'm looking, to, looking forward to hear more about. Uh, but first, Laila. I'm, I'm weirdly embarrassed by that introduction. I haven't like heard all of that stuff. You took me down memory lane, but thank you so much. Thank you first, before I forget, to NYU Abu Dhabi, to the Art Gallery, to the Institute for hosting us in this talk today. Uh, it's long overdue that we get to talk to Faisal after all the commotion of the exhibition. Um, so the National Pavilion UAE is an award-winning pavilion that curates untold stories about the UAE through the lens of art and architecture at the biggest international cultural event, the Venice Biennale, or La Biennale di Venezia, as its more proper name. We're commissioned by the Salama bint Hamdan and the Hayan Foundation, and we are supported by the Ministry of Culture and Youth. So we're government, but not really government. Uh, we're our own entity, and we are the caretakers of our space in Venice and all the processes that go along uh, that are associated with that presentation. As the nation's, we're also the nation's most consistent international cultural platform. We see each presentation at La Biennale as an opportunity to engage in curatorial concepts and to address international conversations from a very uh, local perspective. Since 2009, which was our first participation in the Art Biennale, we have gone on to achieve uh, a number of things. One of those is, uh, we have to say it, we won a Golden Lion in 2021 for architecture. We're very happy about that. Um, and then we've also, but more importantly, we've engaged with some of the top artists, curators, architects from within the UAE and globally to tell those stories on this largest of international platforms. And part of that is also you know, extensive research with each pavilion, which then leads to publications of firsthand research that we then have distributed, not only within the UAE, but also globally through bookstores and libraries and anyone who emails us and asks us for one of our publications. We've also, as was previously mentioned, developed an internship program that to date has sent over 200 individuals, and after this year, probably more than that, to Venice who are to be caretakers of our pavilion, but also more importantly, to become future cultural practitioners here in the UAE. 2023 marked our 12th participation in Venice, but our fifth in the architecture exhibition. And after an international open call, the selection committee and the National Pavilion UAE were really happy to appoint Faisal Fabara to be the curator to lead us in this past year's exhibition. We have been very privileged to work with him and his team, and most of his team were either were alumni of AUS, uh, and some of whom were actually Venice interns as well, so it was a really lovely gathering at both uh, entities. And I'm not gonna talk much about his, his exhibition because this is what he's here to do today, um, but I will have to say that, you know, Aridly Abundant definitely continues the pavilion legacy of generating and engaging in critical issues relevant not just to us here locally, but also to global audiences. And so without further ado, I will leave it to Faisal.
Thank you, Leila. Uh, and again, maybe just to, because I will forget, thank you for NYUAD, for the Art Gallery, and the Institute for inviting me to be here. And thank you, everyone, for showing up at 6.45. Um, I hope you didn't have to drive for this. I'll try, I'll go through the project uh, that Leila had mentioned, but maybe before that, and before that, just to potentially hopefully make this make sense, uh, just a very brief statement on it, kind of a nascent curatorial practice as to why maybe the project makes sense is in my work I'm trying to kind of connect narratives across histories, essentially animate them, make them alive through material practice to imagine alternative worlds. And this is just a reality of me being a teacher, a researcher, a practitioner, all at the same time with really oscillating interests and uh, sometimes contradictory goals. How I do this in terms of a methodology, it's kind of three parts and kind of it not really circular because it's a little bit messier as you probably will learn. Uh, this is kind of an observational framework here. Go out into the field, not trained as any professional uh, field work practitioner, but learning those skills. Um, archival research, bringing those histories to bear as well as, and this is kind of the obvious one, maybe kind of my biases towards a material practice. And these kind of three components are in, in continuous flux with each other. Maybe this will make sense in the context of the project. Uh, before I talk about the project itself, I'd like to give kind of what I'm calling anecdotes from an aridly abundant landscape or aridly abundant landscapes. And it was already mentioned that the project focused on the eastern coast of the UAE, specifically Al-Hajjah Mountains, which is a mountain range that starts where today is uh, Diba in the north, um, where the waters kind of, where the mountains just jut into the water and crosses into Oman and really arrives at Muscat in what is today contemporary Oman. On the east coast of this landscape, in kind of where the sea, where the sea kind of shape is, there's a historical fertile space called uh, Al-Batina, which really on Arabic means on the inside and maybe kind of the shape of the landscape kind of tells you what that might mean. And this, put, putting this out there just as a kind of a seed so that I'll talk about it a little bit later. Um, if you go through a, a kind of a road trip, and I recommend everyone do this once, twice, three, five, sixteen million times a day, or a year, um, you see landscapes that look like this, but they also sometimes look like this. And for an architect, you see a lot of this, which is um, potentially kind of, uh, an un to use the NPUAE language, an untold history of a particular kind of material, historical material practice that existed in that area in the world, which is kind of dry stack, stone stacking. But also, as you can see, multi-material, because there's an introduction of vegetal elements within the dry stack, stone stacking. And maybe you can also see that lizard. Uh, something to kind of think about. I'll also, in the anecdotes, maybe go back a thousand years ago. Um, we have an Arab traveler, Al-Maqdisi, in 985, has done a series of travels across that landscape. And of Al-Batina, which I've kind of told you, the fertile landscape, um, he writes about it being a gateway to China or, depending on the translation, either a storehouse or the emporium of the east. Uh, within the mountains itself, uh, in the Al-Hajjah Mountains itself, he talks about towns that are rich with drinking water and irrigation. And the eastern, on the western foothills, as far as I can tell, it's somewhere close to Al-Ain today, he talks about a town that is in the middle of palm trees. Um, if I move a thousand, uh, 900 years from that, we've got a story from an American missionary called Samuel Marinus Zwemer, who spent a lot of time in the region between 1900 and 1903. 
And on one particular trip on Camelback, he arrives by boat from Bahrain into kind of what is today Abu Dhabi, very close to here actually, because he does talk about crossing Al-Maqta'a Bridge. Um, and he travels north from Abu Dhabi essentially to Al-Batina. And at the beginning, he talks about the desert. He talks about seeing a mountain that is about 220 meters, which is what today is Jabal Ali. And this tells us that water is really scarce on this route. As he travels further north, he arrives at Sharjah and does start to kind of give us hints about shade. He does give us hint about something might be changing within this landscape. Um, and it's kind of the images that he kind of described. This is really out of his uh, essay, taking shade under an acacia tree. Uh, on his second day, he does approach Al-Hajar, and that's where he starts to talk about villages that are cultivated. But despite the, the intense heat, water is really bursting out of the ground in these landscapes. Finally, he does arrive into Al-Hajar proper, essentially discussing wadis that are running with water, something that we're almost able to discern today, just if you just kind of have a little bit of a keen eye. Eventually, he does, as um, Al-Maqtisi has done, he descends into Al-Batina and really starts to talk about the continuous fertile strip from Deba to Masqat that is filled with palm trees, fig trees, mangoes, mulberry, really also a hint to a 900-year-ago statement about this landscape being essentially an emporium to the east. Because this does talk about kind of networks of plants moving across that landscape. Um, the story is not very chronologically accurate. I'm jumping a little bit. We jump into like in the 1950s, essentially when the British started to um, do heavily water-based development project in the region, in what is used to be called the Tushul States. And this landscape that Zwemer and Makdisi have described starts to essentially potentially disappear. We read about a cycle of poor rainwater, and that water is now practically measured by the bucketful. This starts a series of, like I said, water-based development projects. A very famous one, and there's a historian who I think it was NYU, NYU AD for a while, Matthew McLean, has focused a lot on this. So, um, what emerges out of these projects is the, the Daga trial station. Um, Colonel Merrilees arrives, in 1954 and tries to find water, fails in 11 or so sites. Eventually, he finds water in Ras al-Khema. And what that establishes at the Digdaga trial station in Ras al-Khema in 1955. And it survives in some way, shape, or form to the late 70s. Um, after a successful first year, it starts to struggle, and we've got this sort of statement by some, one of the visitors who tells us something along the lines that there are clearly, some of the problems are clearly based on complete ignorance of the present methods of work in the Faraj, meaning we've imported these methods of work. They were essentially blowing up uh, wells in hopes of kind of finding a little bit more water, and that really hasn't working. Um, what Mary Lee is also uh, sorry, what McLean tells us is, in fact, yes, the date palm in that project was completely missing to this development project, which is a again a, um, a statement that's telling us that there's like an, an absence of an understanding of what land-based practices in those regions used to mean. Uh, the primary goal for the trial station was essentially to ship crops into kind of other outposts of the British Empire. So this kind of gets us into a curatorial question that attempts to be both local and global at the same time, si situates itself or understands itself within the context of the Venice Biennial, and I'll try to kind of maybe expand on that in a little bit. And the question is, what architectural conditions can become possible if we reimagine arid environments as spaces of abundance? How can we do that? 
it's really kind of the kind of the provocation that I'm putting out there, and it's not necessarily a solution as much as it's a provocation, is that this can happen through thinking and acting agriculturally. And what this really means, kind of in simple layman terms, is thinking about a confluence of people, culture, environments, local land-based knowledge, as well as technology. So it's really also not kind of a, um, a kind of a past-only condition. Why does this matter? Why does reimagining arid landscapes of spaces as spaces of abundance matter? Um, is kind of there's a framework of thinking about building in aridity, building with aridity, and building for aridity. And then there is a past, present, and future component here. It's important to uncover those arid land-based practices and bring them to the to the present. We rethink through that. We can rethink extractive material practices that are ongoing in the present, but also recognize aridity as a future global condition in other areas in the world. So within that past, present, future, there's also again a recognition that we will be in Venice. How can this project resonate not just here but also a potentially global audience? The research framework is kind of after being a little bit messy. Uh, and remains a little bit messy, hence kind of back on not being a perfect circle. Um, it, we kind of focused on, and I say we, got a team, I have a co-editor for the publication, Nathan Mazuri. We had a, a photographer on board, Vim Kralaknaz, and it's really kind of a, it's a collaborative practice. Um, we've identified ideas around places, materials, and tactics, and how these three components work with each other. So what I mean by materials is really the range of matter that we have found in Al-Hajjah Mountains is built natural and really built environment, uh, which is raw material, semi-raw material, or semi-processed material, and really artificial material. And if I can maybe uh, extrapolate more on this, we're talking about earthen or stone material, vegetal material, and the heavy use of fabric, synthetic and natural. When we talk about tactics, which is kind of a very architectural framework, it's how, what we understand tactics as is how individuals and groups reconfigure materials in deliberate ways to support their agricultural activities. And what we kind of, again, from an architectural standpoint, why this, why this kind of has value is that they provoke an ad hoc, multi-material, and almost misfit attitude towards placemaking. And misfit here is used as a positive, right? It challenges hegemonic uh, supply chains where everything fits together in a really nice way. Um, and we've, uh, through kind of a lot of field work, a lot of talking to individuals within those landscapes, we've identified, and really outside of the landscapes, because it is not necessarily a discrete condition. It really leaks into the wider region. Um, we've identified these 10 tactics. I'm not going to, they're all in the book, and they kind of, they appear in the book in both a photo essay as well as like a, a note about what the tactic might mean. I'm just going to pull out a couple of examples just, just to help you understand how, those, how that field work man manifests itself in the, in the actual exhibition project. So um, I'm putting out four. The, kind of the first one we've noticed is this tactic of what we're calling of marking, which is essentially using stone as a form of communication in the landscape. And this really happens in creating these stone, tot stone totems that we've seen a lot in those landscapes, which is really just a demarcation of plots or a demarcation of family area versus another family area. Some of it is demarcation. If you think of this one, if you've ventured deep, you'll see these um, phosphoric orange uh, spray paint thingies, which are essentially just, it's a safety for cars. Right? So someone has actually taken it upon themselves to create a, kind of a safe car, a night car situation. 
they're all on these kind of edges. And there's like, we've got thousands of these photos. At one point, when you get a little bit obsessive, it's like, okay, let's take one of, one of these photos. Let's take a photo of this. Okay, five meters. Let's take a photo of this, and let's take a photo of that. And then we have a photo of every one of these guys. Um, so this is kind of the first tactic, this tactic of marking, which really becomes instrumental when we start to think about what happens in the project. The second tactic, which is kind of the most explicitly architectural one, is that tactic of stacking. And specifically here we're talking about device stacked stone sourced within the area. Again, uh, I recommend, for example, there's a new road that's been cut through Jabal al so it's just opened a year ago. And a lot of these things happened while we were doing the work. So, oh, there's a new road that just opened, let's go to it. And within the new road, you start to uncover new things. But if you go on that road, you start to see a series of stone constructions, uh, what we call, we started to call endearingly these um, optical illusions, because you really can't see them unless you get out of the car, walk to the mountain's foothead, and realize that there's actually a construct within the mountain's foothead, because we're using the same material that is just off of the mountain's foothead. Um, some of some of the conditions, and I'll explain that in, the, in a little bit, some of the conditions of these misfit stone constructions continue today, even though we're seeing less use of actual stone construction, we're seeing a lot of concrete masonry units, but you'll see that the constant concrete masonry unit, because it's accessible and cheap, is also used in the same ways as a, as a dry stack stone in terms of porosities. That'll make sense when I kind of show those photos. So we, again, started to identify all of these photos and started to call them these misfit assemblies. Um, and the misfit assemblies also become, again, like I said earlier, multi-material misfit assemblies. So sometimes I need something for tension. Let's find a tree. And the tree would be somewhere there. And we've seen examples where there's a stump and there's a tree. And it's like, okay, this seemed to be like the stump is the same diameter as the tree that's holding that roof. A lot of conjecture is happening here. But I think uh, we've allowed ourselves that leeway. Uh, a third one is a little bit architectural, these tactics of supporting. And actually, a little bit more specific here, there's a particular word in the Arabic language that we've uncovered, which is used to supporting a uh, palm tree. Uh, and that has, again, become this uh, instrumental way in which we think about land-based knowledge, but also land-based language and how that might kind of create an experience within the exhibition design. Finally, uh, these sort of uh, tactics of channeling. Uh, there's a kind of a fascinating moment that happened during the field work, which is um, a young, so the son of a landowner, started to talk about these PVC channels using the, the traditional word of uh, earthen channels, which is a flash. So they're thinking about uh, function as opposed to thinking about material. So he called, so all of these channels in the ground have, are still being called a flage because they behave in the same way as a traditional flage might behave. Not 100% the same way, but it, it, there is a similarity. So that was also an unlock for us in terms of how land-based language continues despite the material being used is essentially synthetic. This, I'm not gonna bore you with all of these, but essentially, these photos become repositories of us starting to understand how these tactics come together. So there's like a thousands of these photos that, and we kind of purposefully started to do, this is a little bit kind of, it doesn't, it's a bit of a sanitized version of it, but we've got um, photos printed and we started to draw on them. In, on site, in trying to, as architects, teach ourselves how to do field work, because we're genuinely not trained to do so. So, um, 
again, this, this, they become, for, from our point of view, because we, we had a goal for the exhibition, that this exhibition becomes an experiential condition in which we're able to transport some of what we're learning to the, the Venice space. Uh, so they become extremely generative for us as space-making and material-making tools. And I, I'm happy to kind of go back if there's any question about them, and we can talk about them in a little bit more detail. So it takes us to the third component, which is essentially places. Uh, so we talked about materials. We talked about how materials come together through certain use of tactics. And then places are essentially the spaces in which agricultural thinking expresses itself within the Western Al-Hajar Mountains, Eastern Al-Hajar, sorry, Eastern Al-Hajar Mountains. Uh, uh, no, that's actually the Western, sorry, it is the Western, uh, sorry. Um, so again, just to kind of reiterate this, because this will become a challenge for us when we start to think about the uh, exhibition design, places, these places express interactions between people, culture, environment, land-based knowledge and language and technology. So when we get to the exhibition design, here's kind of the challenge that we put out for ourselves. How do we tell a story of the mountains? How do we tell a story of the places within those mountains? Of the tactics used in those mountains? Precarity, because we have found also precarity in the mountains, and that, that starts to challenge our curatorial question that those mountains are spaces of abundance when we have identified precarity. And then finally, because this seems to be a little bit missing, how, do, how are we able to tell stories of the people in those mountains? Is even though this is really kind of, the entry point was a purely architectural entry point or a material entry point. And the device that we've uh, kind of identified to be able to tell that story is this idea of wallness. So a wallness as a device, not necessarily a wall because the thing will break down and no longer be read as a wall, but wallness as a device that exhibits the, the multitude of building tactics that we have seen. And those tactics hopefully will be able to tell us about material and to kind of communicate a sense of place. <coughs> so I've talked a little bit, and we, we kind of the wall also pushes itself on us because through the fieldwork and observing the, cons the construct within the landscape, we see a lot. Of, we've seen a lot of these walls um, and stacking in CMU. We start to see these kind of conditions, which is oh, CMU really cheaper, a little bit more accessible, a little bit easier to build with, but cannot actually sustain itself within the salinity of the landscape. So this, these conditions started to happen. Uh, we've encountered components where there's a concrete, uh, like a 1990s built concrete well, and the landowner is now building a stone well that looks a little bit closer to his grandfather's stone well because they've learned that the concrete well isn't actually being able to sustain itself because they have to keep repairing it, they keep repairing it. Whereas that stone well that hasn't been used is still intact. So these three wells in some proximity to each other start to essentially challenge this idea of a uh, global supply chain essentially giving us these solutions. Um, another way in which CMU starts to, starts to be used a little bit like the dry stack stone. What's kind of successful about the dry stack stone is it allows, it's porous, it allows air in. CMU block does not allow air in, so there are tactics in which this starts to happen, either by giving it a gap, introducing a new material, or finally by giving up and actually digging holes in them. And these holes essentially become uh, kind of a strong aesthetic component across that landscape. And what you also start to see is this multi-material condition where we've got older walls, we're building on top of older walls with new material, and then we're mimicking how the new material behaves like the old material, as opposed to just having built it with the old material. Um, there's also kind of hidden 
it's always hidden electricity somewhere. Something just to also keep in, mi in mind. Uh, because it does, again, uh, becomes generative for us in the exhibition, this sort of hidden component of electricity. We have to go to Venice, and we've been doing this stone-based work. I've kind of also, as you can imagine, haven't fully shown you under the hood in terms of the kind of stonework that we've been looking at. But we, there's a recognition, oh, we are going to Venice. This is not going to be in the UAE. And uh, well, we can't ship stone to Venice. It's just for many reasons, it's not possible. Also antithetical to the project that we're trying to do, which is to, to think about material supply chains, to think about land-based knowledge, and really kind of adopting a an architectural farm to table, right? What's kind of the biggest or smallest radius that we can supply material from? Uh, with, within that, we started to understand that around 30 to 40 percent of quarried stone, Veneto region has a lot of quarries, is considered waste by the construction industry. Waste is a kind of a vague material for something that is too small to make a countertop, oddly shaped as in potentially aesthetically unappealing or not functional, or sometimes actually lacking in structural integrity. Uh, in, in one quarry in uh, Verona, um, the quarry owner who essentially takes discard stone, turns it into powder for terrazzo, uh, has told us that uh, demand for whitish countertops have gone down in the region, so he's not able to sell the whitish, the whitish terrazzo. And he's uncovered that uh, you could sell it to um, chicken breeders in Amsterdam, in, in Holland, because the calcium in the white stone makes stronger eggshells that you can then ship back to Europe or to Italy. And yours truly has, because of custom, did not say no to tasting the white powder uh, because he was adamant. Um, but so, we've, so we started to build a network of these um, four or five quarries within the Veneto region around 120 kilometers out of Venice to start to think about how we can get their discard stone into the space. Uh, within that, we were also working in the studio in the UAE. And because of kind of a inability to shake off the entire, almost, I don't want to speak for everyone in the team, but almost the entire team's kind of technocentricity. That question of what's the tech or what's the technology has continuously been in the back of our head. So uh, we are thinking about this wall as something that is infused with technology that does provoke alternative building systems that are rooted in their culture and material surroundings. So what's the kind of, is it 100 percent we used to kind of think about this, we've developed these simple word or mind tools of like, how much tech is there? Is it 100% tech? Is it 0% tech? Is it tech invisible? Is it tech not invisible? Um, and started to kind of theorize, a, a conceptualize on this idea of misfit assemblies that, and giving, like, okay, we, we, we kind of latched onto the title and see something that uh, has become very generative for us. And we started to think about these misfit assemblies that refer to the arranging of discarded materials in tactical ways that challenge precision, visually challenge precision, uh, at least in architecture, there's kind of a, for, it has, it's been challenged a little bit now, but for the last maybe 15 years, there's been kind of a complete belief in the power of mass customization and automation that we're going to make these things somewhere else in the world and we're, they're going to arrive here and we're going to just plug and play. And the joke that I make that doesn't really 
land well with architects is um, I haven't seen a non-digitally fabricated thing not have to be forced into place. The reality is that promise hasn't been achieved because of just tolerances and physics. So we're taking the polemic of, okay, if that promise is not really achieved, can we just challenge it by taking the polemic and thinking about things that don't actually fit with each other? Um, and the idea here is that misfit, misfit assemblies are cost and energy efficient because they don't require any form of processing. Give me the material, we'll 3D scan the material, and by magic of technology, those two pieces of material will tell us how they would like to be um, connected with each other. Um, we started off with actually literally building stone walls. I'm gonna, just going to go through these guys uh, just to start to understand how much of a wall are we going to be able to build in Venice, how big of a wall, what shape of a wall, et cetera, et cetera. Again, so there's an architect in all of the team, almost all of the team, that is kind of thinking about making, digitizing, uh, just producing serials of these just to kind of be able to push the images out for our own sake. Uh, until we arrived at this idea of, all right, uh, the inf this infused technology is when we take two pieces of stone that don't really fit with each other and we essentially give them a prosthetic or an interface and they become structurally stable. Um, eventually, just so the early material, earliest tests were 3D printed, but just to be able to kind of adhere to our idea of uh, being as eco-friendly as possible, right? let's just do it out of recycled aluminum and then we'll just send the aluminum prosthetics back when we finish the exhibition and then they'll go back to wherever they were, you know, to they wherever they were going to go. Now, this is kind of behind the scenes work in terms of we start to kind of amass this body of digital pieces and then try to test them out physically and this is going to become the first prototype that has a physical and digital world so I'm just going to very easily it kind of comes down uh, and it's sort of a misfit Ikea in one way shape or form because there's only one way in which it will be fit but um, it's a almost anti-intuitive way but eventually you start to learn that okay these things will fit with each other Again, we start to build a library of these guys just to be able to kind of understand what kind of constructs we were able to uh, achieve. We have to go to Venice. Again, we forget. For, for a while, we forget we have to go to Venice until Farah and Leila remind us that right away that Venice is in two months. Um, so uh, for the exhibition design or taking us to the space, we've identified through the work that, the, that these tactics can not just produce a wall, because that's kind of where we started, but they can produce multiple architectural conditions that are able to communicate the different kinds of, uh, the different sense of place that we have seen in the Hajar Mountains. Walls, volumes, furniture, etc. Uh, again, a series of kind of architectural drawings. Uh, without going to Venice, you think you're going to do the perfect thing, and then you go to Venice and you realize, oh, tolerances, the, the same tolerances that we were, we were hoping to avoid uh, the project. So this is kind of iteration one. You sent this to the contractor, you spent too much with the contractor trying to perfect this, and then you get to Venice and you realize, Okay, this thing is not going to work, and this is kind of the new piece. And it's 80% close. Um, but it really kind of changes on the ground. And that is kind of something that we've um, all also um, what I'm looking for. Uh, embraced uh, because it is part of this tactical attitude. There's only so much as one can plan, and then the rest will have to happen on the ground, which is what we've seen in person, in, through observation, happen on the ground. Uh, so this is some images of the quarries that we've kind of went to. You go with a handheld 3D scanner, you ask the quarry person, uh, 
where's your discard stone? There's a pile there. You go to the pile. You select the discard stone. You, you put it aside. You hope that it comes to Venice and you realize that none of it will come to Venice because they're just going to pick because they think it's just discard stone and you haven't done the work. They send you another pile of discard stone and that's fine. Uh, you work with what you get and eventually you get this at a dock in Venice. Um, you have to get this into the space, and none of this was actually the stone we selected. It's fine. It's fine. You 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 live with it, uh, because the tools, the kind of the methodology that were developed. I mean, there's a deadline, but the methodology of uh, being able to receive any form of material is resilient enough to be able to take this mishap. Um, so this, in a matter of 15 days plus minus, I can't remember anymore. Um, you arrive here on uh, November, uh, November? Uh, April 25th, the day, the day after the Eid, and in 15 days you get this. It appears as though it's an easy process, but let me just talk about what you, you're seeing on the space. You're seeing a wall that is kind of freestanding that has these prosthetics. You're seeing a volume or a column, like we decided to call it a fat column. You're seeing a, a table on the left that um, also has these uh, screens, and the screens that become this audiovisual component in which Rim Falakna, she's done a lot of the photos that you've seen in the exhibit, in the presentation, and you will see in the book. Um, but she also has a series of four videos um, that you have to get close to. It's at the scale of a phone, because this is really kind of the the way in which we're starting to consume landscapes today uh, with sound that is just above those videos that are the kind of the hint at transforming you back into the Al-Hajar Mountains. So I highly recommend it if you're kind of interested uh, to look to go through the walkthrough that's on the website, on PUE's website, and you'll be able to see those four videos. And they really, they, that's kind of where that story of the people starts to show up because she's following people, doing the tactical work, uh, and essentially building a particular place within Al-Hajar Mountains. Uh, you're also seeing <coughs> sorry, a tapestry in the back, uh, and the tapestry becomes another tool in which we're able to tell some of these stories, and because we've realized that the objects in the space will only be able to go so far at telling a particular kind of story, which is very material, and then there are a series of stories that we've uncovered that also kind of deserve to be told, and I'll, I'll describe them in a, in, a few, in a few seconds. So two weeks' time, I'm just giving you a snapshot of two weeks, uh, two weeks' time, this, um, you also start to appreciate machines a little bit more when you when you kind of started the project being a little bit anti-machine. Um, start to give the machine nicknames, etc. Uh, and you start to kind of build these pieces in place. Again, the sort of anti-IKEA, IKEA method. Uh, you've kind of 3D scanned a lot of the stone. They fit with each other, but they're still a little bit heavy to move. So there's some labor, and I think that's kind of maybe the biggest takeaway for me is... You, uh, the amount of labor that, and the bodies and the people that have to just do a simple wall in a, an exhibition space. Uh, so if, if there's kind of a redo to this, it becomes the story of the people within the Venice space that actually have to build that wall. Uh, because I don't want to be remiss, this is kind of from Farah, our exhibition, our exhibition coordinators, uh, kind of in the background. You can see her in the background uh, somewhere here, someone else, but you can see them in the background also stitching these things. So the work also oscillates because this is the kind of thing that we've seen in landscape, oscillating between the big and the heavy and the very earthen, but also the very careful. And we saw the hidden things that only, I think, 
the team on this sees even, but those kind of the ways in which the fabric is stitched is stitched in very particular ways that mimics some of the things that we have seen in those landscapes. So the scale of the needle to the scale of the two-ton stone. Um, maybe just a quick walkthrough through the exhibition. Um, glare helps, so we've kind of taken that Venice glare to our advantage. Um, you kind of really don't see anything. You realize you actually are not supposed to be seeing anything, and it kind of takes you in. But I think the agricultural fabric is kind of an obvious takeaway from kind of the landscapes that we've seen. Uh, you realize that all this fabric is actually made in China, even though we want it to be front to table. But some of these things that we actually have to kind of um, confront. Um, you confronted with the, uh, the wall text, maybe just a nod to the graphic designers, for Mr. from Cairo, who even through the, uh, the kind of the branding of the exhibition, kind of taken on board this idea of a misfit assembly between Arabic and English, and sort of the complete maybe uh, genericness of the English font and the expression of the Arabic font, some, somehow a little bit um, resonating with the uh, stacked stone project and maybe the kind of 3D printed prosthetics. <coughs> Sorry, just images of the space for a second, just maybe uh, to tell you, uh, to allow maybe some kind of conversation to happen. Um, some of the details around the space, and you start to see a lot of these uh, things that we have drawn as a kind of a scanning or documentation tool. We've kept them to the, in the space in a way that, again, communicates a particular way of assembly, which really also communicates what we've seen in Al-Hajar landscape, in the sense that there isn't a preciousness to finishing the project and washing it and moving along. Again, just to zoom in into integrating Reem's work into the mountain, into the wall. So really, one of the things that we wanted to do is a little bit of slowness. I think the Venice, uh, if, if you have been to Venice, the biennial, both maybe architecture and art, one realizes that it's, it's a charged space, busy, quick. So with the small videos, with the overhead speaker, one of the things that we wanted to do is just kind of surprise the audience. Like you're walking, you see a video, you stop, you start to hear the sound. It's a little bit slows you down. Um, the furniture in the space that you've seen is also kind of really meant to just take a, a sit. And that's kind of some of the feedback that we've received is even the hiding of the entry allows people to just go in and assume for a second that they're not in the charged Venice space. <coughs> uh, finally, within the exhibition, we've got that tapestry. And like I said, you know, it tells this myriad of stories. So. Um, once you look at the tapestry, you read some of, and I'll talk about the book, some of the stories in the book, you start to see that we've tried to pull some of those stories into that. Um, so, for example, uh, stories of a tradition that has kind of been eliminated or disappeared today of wheat fields. Uh, you see a lot of this in Ras uh, al northern Ras al a series of kind of abandoned wheat fields. Uh, some of them are still remaining, but it's kind of a hidden tra tradition. Um, We've uh, done a visit to Iqba, tried to understand the sort of, okay, there's the wheat fields of Ras al-Khaima that are abandoned, but ICDA, the International Center for Biosalian Agriculture, is doing work to kind of reinvigorate that practice, and we're starting to kind of put all of this into a single tapestry. Again, it's physically kind of not accurate, but it does tell a lot of those stories. Um, and bringing those people that we've kind of met along the way, and it's kind of our nod to meeting those people that we've photographed and talked to, and gave us a lot of that kind of knowledge. Finally, uh, there's a publication with this, also designed by uh, um, 
by Fouti Mustaqil uh, and co-edited with Mathur Mizrui. And it's called In Plain Sights, Scenes from Arabia Abundant Landscapes. Um, and it really is a kind of conceived as a travel book or a travelogue. And the reason why, and this kind of from day one, we wanted to do the travelogue is to challenge the same book type that has painted those landscapes as, I mean, if you think about uh, William Makepeace Thackeray of Vanity Fair fame, parched landscapes in which horror things happen. Right? So uh, that has been kind of a goal, which is re- uh, to challenge the ways in which Arab landscapes are perceived and to say that there might be value in them if kind of we can adopt a land-based slash or married with tech approach. Um, the publication is kind of multi-parts. We've got Reem Felaknaz's photo essays as prologues and epilogues. We've got a series of people actually traveling through Al-Hajar, coming back and writing their own field notes, people traveling through other kinds of arid landscapes, and ways in which that can translate to the UAE, uh, people traveling through historical travels through landscapes, uh, and, uh, and even fiction around the landscapes in themselves. So we've got Deepak Krishnan and Hamad al-Nagar writing series of... Um, uh, so Hamad al-Nagar has written a story through essentially the lens of a rock, uh, that becomes a stone in a dry stack house that is abandoned and is left on its own until someone else picks it up, etc. And Deepak writing a kind of a, a fable around the mountains. And within those series of travels, we, we have our own field note, which is the research component, which really is this, the kind of the reservoir from which we've done the tapestry. So all those stories are there, along with the photo essays around the tactics in themselves. Um, some spreads from those, and maybe just a last slide about the million people who are involved in this, because I would, I would forget them if I have to say them. I have, I have in the past from them. You've been listening to a download from the NYRBW Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute.